So way back in episode one, um, this is the point where you can put the way back music, John, that you've got on the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 60th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 23rd of June, 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. Good Lord, you all have a lot of opinions about Monster Munch. We are not going to go through all of them here, but we really respected the amount of attention you all gave that on Facebook. Apparently, you all like Monster Munch a lot. Um... Over on Twitter, uh, someone sent us a chart of comment or a cock. <laughs> no, 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 no. Too far, John. Too far. So Hugo Book Club wrote to us saying a very quick note for accuracy. Um, I think I said that Fancast was the category with the lowest participation, and they sent a graph showing participation rates in the at-risk categories, and Fancast is sometimes the lowest, but is not always. And I do recommend going and checking out that graph, and we will put a link in the show notes. I discovered that Peter Sullivan once used a Monster Munch as an engagement ring because the bar didn't have any hula hoops. I'm just feeling sorry for the Americans who are like, what does that mean? There's a lot of nouns there, but like, what? Uh, so, yeah, if you're listening, Laurie and the Hugo Girl people, uh, uh, we will explain it to you at Worldcon. Yeah, I might manage to bring some hula hoops in my luggage. It won't make more sense, but you'll know what it means. I almost want all the details from Peter, but I also kind of want it to remain, you know, the rest of the story to remain a mystery. Except, Peter, please write in to say what you used as a wedding ring. <laughs> Well, he used roast beef for the engagement, so presumably pickled onion for the wedding. <laughs> Both Kevin Stanley and Tammy Coxon wrote to us about NASFIC voting. Thank you very much, both. Kevin basically noted on Twitter that there have been previous cases where NASFICs have selected NASFICs because the lead times for world cons used to be different, um, which is... Uh, something I don't think we picked up on, um, but basically it didn't used to have to be that there was Worldcon consecutively because obviously the the bid process used to take three years, not two. Um, and so it happened in 1987 when voters at CactusCon in Phoenix chose the site of the 1990 NASFIC. Thank you both for writing in. Yeah. Chris Garcia sent us a letter of comment. Thank you very much, Chris. He says he is the gloomy dark rain cow- cloud hanging over fandom. Oh, bother. Sorry, Chris, try eating some pickled onion monster munch and and you'll perk right up. We'll bring you some, Chris, don't worry. Oh, yeah, and he also uh, mentioned uh, Sci-Fi London short film programme, which is fantastic. And yes, I don't think I got a word in on this one uh, last time, but I went to many um, Sci-Fi London short film programmes when I lived in London or thereabouts, and they were fantastic. Maybe I'll even put a link to some of my favourites in the show notes if I can remember which ones they were. Uh, also, he's surprised that Alison is short, so apparently either Chris is short and doesn't know it, or maybe Alison's personality just makes her seem like a tall person through sheer force of will. Por que no los dos? Chris is, Chris is, like, he's not a tall man, I wouldn't say, but Alison is also taller personality than stature. Not a tall man. Alison is also not a tall man, that is true. This is something that, that people... People are often very surprised to discover how short I am, um, but I make up for it in width. I was going to say volume, but... 
on Friday, I was on a Zoom with Alison, and there was a point at which Stephen took a phone and recorded Alison doing something, and I had not seen Alison from Stephen's vantage point before, and it is bloody brilliant. Highly recommend anyone get Stephen to like carry a camera around when he's with Alison and watch, because it is 10 out of 10, would win a Hugo. And what was I doing, and why was I doing it, John? You were making a tzatziki and beer smoothie with ice because i said i'd pay you a fiver if you did it and drank it and you did it and drink drank it and then i and then i owed you a fiver uh and it was let me tell you spending a fiver for that level of entertainment highly recommend it was pretty good uh anyone who's at a convention bring a fiver and some tzatziki and corner allison in the bar <laughs> Worldcon. uh you know please don't it'll be it'll be good everyone do that please please don't but secondly, I did eventually watch all of the Sci-Fi London short films. Uh, there was a brief um, hitch. I think we might have mentioned it on the podcast last time where the website had, had broken on the day I was going to finish them off. Um, but it was back up and running the next day. So we watched them and it was very good. And I generally enjoyed all the others I watched as well. But we already talked about it in some detail. But Liz, I forgot you used to live in the UK and went to UK things. I was like, oh yeah, Liz, Liz, Liz was near London once. I was. I've never done, I've kind of ignored Sci-Fi London, except once or twice I've been to things on the Sci-Fi London program, or, and it's been good. But I feel like I should do more of Sci-Fi London than I do. Um, but that's, I feel like I should do more of everything than I do. What, how do people find time for things, people? It's difficult. Leicester used to have a great film festival every year, which was um, zombie focused. And so I have seen a surprising number of classic zombie films, uh, especially consider is considering my view of cinema in general my view of zombie cinema is much better than my view of almost all other cinema run by a bloke called zombie ed the, the thing about sci-fi london is like some of the longer films could be hit and miss i mean the short films can as well but in the short film program you usually got kind of a, a mix of like quite good ones some terrible ones some mediocre ones whereas if you you know picked randomly four films you might randomly pick four mediocre ones so i i thought it was a very good chance you'd see something really good but then, of course, if you did see a really good film, then it was brilliant. One of the things that is great about short film programmes is that if you absolutely hate something, there'll be something else along in 10 minutes. And I like that a lot. Exactly. One other thing Chris mentions in his lock is that we definitely have a listener in South America, uh, which is very exciting. So Chris says that his friend Jules lived in California for decades, but has moved to Brazil and says he listens to the podcast last time Chris spoke to him. So we have a South American listener. Yes. Hello, Jules. So now we need Africa and Antarctica and Asia, who is not Liz. And then we get the full set. Yes. I've, to be fair, I do have colleagues on Antarctica, so I could ask them to listen, but is that cheating? Oh, Do you have colleagues on Antarctica, John? Like, sporadically, but because obviously you don't just live there. Uh, but yeah, like, I've got colleagues who have wintered in Antarctica. It's, they have great photos. So, yeah, you should definitely do that. John, 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 do you ever have colleagues in space? <gasps> Not yet. Oh, if you're listening to Watch a Thought from Space, we really, really want to shout out. Thank you. Bridget Bradshaw wrote to us. She put the phrase cover art for Octothought podcast into the um, artificial intelligence image maker Dali and... And she describes the result as weirdly pleasing. We have used it as our show art this episode. Um, she says, I don't know what it's drawing from except for the Sue Mason, which I think is probably the left the left um, column in the middle. 
I think might be coming from the punctuation art in part because it's that black and white. It was very cool. So thank you very much, Bridget. That was a great lock. It is. I find it strangely beautiful, and it's all. It's gone very much with a sort of pink and yellow and blue color scheme somehow, apart from one which is black and white. And sometimes there are like shadowy figures. Yeah. If they're supposed to be us, like the Illuminati. If you just put Octothorpe in, Liz discovered you basically get sea anemone. I don't know what about us is sea anemone like, uh, but yeah. I mean, I was thinking I'd just get you know hashtags. Yeah, yeah. It's very clearly keying off Octa and not off Thorpe. Mm. Mm. Um, interestingly, but I don't know why. But yes, thank you very much, Bridget. Oh, and my Brad W. Foster um, original arrived in the post, and it's very nice, and I like it very, very much. And obviously it's at home and I'm not, so I can't show you it. Sorry, I'll show you it next time, promise. Oh, and also, there was a lock from episode one we were going to deal with, and I'll let Alison introduce it. So way back in episode one. Um, Catherine Crockett said, please, can you do transcripts of Octothorpe? And we took that very seriously. And so now here on episode 60 of Octothorpe, we now have transcripts. We've got transcripts of episodes 57 to 59. And um, we're going to do the rest in our copious free time. If you listen to Octothorpe on the Podbean player, it's got the embedded subtitles in SRT format. They don't won't propagate into your podcast thing. So if you need subtitles, you can either download the SRT subtitles and put them into your podcast, your listening solution, or you can listen on Podbean. Both of those work. We think transcripts will normally be about a week after the podcast um, or up to a week after the podcast. We'll see how it goes because it's still a very manual, pro- despite the fact that Otter auto transcribes the episode, it makes a lot of mistakes and we like to correct the most egregious of those before we put it online. Um, and we have a new Octothorpe page on efanzines.com and the link is in the show notes and you can find there the text files the the transcript and also the subtitle files so that you can put it into whatever you use to listen to the podcast and also our the second edition um amended edition of an immutable artifact which is our hugo verta packet submission um and all of this is thanks to bill burns who has um put the page up for us i mean the transcripts are thanks to us because we've done them um we think transcripts are important for accessibility. So thank you for nudging us, Catherine. And we've done it now. And it was, it's great. You say we, it's, it's mostly Alison doing the transcripts. Thank you, Alison. Alison is doing most of the transcripts. Thank you, Alison, because this is uh, a hugely tedious job that um, would drive me absolutely mad. So um, I'm, I'm very in awe that Alison has taken it on. So thanks to John for doing the editing, which is a hugely tedious job that would drive me mad. So, you know. The the key in any successful um, partnership is to find people who like different forms of tedium. My dad my dad um, has a theory of this with marriages. He's like, you need someone who likes cooking and someone who likes washing up. Uh, and, and I think that you can generalise that into creative partnerships in a, men, in, in a number of ways. And Liz's favourite form of tedium is sitting on beautiful beaches whilst reading books. <laughs> oh, shots fired! Shots fired! Liz, do you have a response? Look, if we need any Octothorpe spreadsheets doing, I am totally on it. 
Oh, that is true. Liz, Liz has, and you have done spreadsheets for us previously. You've, you've, you've knocked up a graph or two in your time for previous issues, episodes. So, listeners, if you can think of some data you'd like processing for Octothorpe, do let us know and we'll get Liz on it. Fair. Jonathan Cowie sent us a letter of comment, which we we are going to treat as a full segment because we think it was an interesting question. And he asks, what special Hugo Award would we introduce if we were in charge of, of doing that at Glasgow in 2024? Assuming, of course, touching wood, that Glasgow were to be successful in becoming the Worldcon when we vote for them in Chicago. I think Glasgow is now the heir presumptive for the Worldcon, isn't it? Or maybe even the heir apparent. Yeah, but I could still get a writing bid going for Alison's house if I wanted. Do not even think about it. Yes, listeners, you heard it here first. Walthamstow 2024. Um, Right, but... I feel like Bangkok 2024 would be a lot more fun. (laughs) Oh, that's true, actually. Liz, let's put the world in Worldcon. So the the question is, what special Hugo would we introduce if we were in charge of Glasgow 2024, um, which we're definitely not? Um, and my suggestion is best transcript. I think it's just a 10 out of 10 idea. Uh, I think, you know, there needs to be more recognition of transcripts in the podcast space. And, uh, you know, we have better art in our transcript than some other transcripts. So I think we're, we're a shoe in. Well, well, we did do. Well, yeah, maybe sort of. Oh, we- I've now discovered that it's much better to have your transcript as a plain text file, so that's what we're doing going forward. But yes, the unusual artifact is a fanzine, but it is not eligible for the best fanzine you get, obviously. You go, Liz. Should I go? Um, so I should say here, I am assuming that uh, between now and 2024, we have already passed the proposal to have a best video games, Hugo, because if we haven't done that, then I would definitely have a best video game, Hugo, because I think it worked very nicely last year and I'd like to see it continue. But assume we... Best game, Hugo, says Alison. Best best game, Hugo. Sorry, it's best video game in my head. Best video game in my head would be an awesome Hugo, but, you know, you probably don't want to know. Can I have a Hugo for best vivid dream? No, don't tell us. <laughs> Liz, you made it sound like I had a very vivid dream the other day that Stuart Broad's dad was very old. That was the end. That was just the dream. Just a single, super vivid image of a very old man. I mean, presumably Stuart Broad's dad is quite old. But I was imagining him in like 95, and Stuart Broad's dad is actually what I would describe as a dilf. See, this is getting into the disturbing regions that I was not going into. <laughs> exactly. This is why we're not doing it right. This is both disturbing and cricket content, so I think it should be banned on two two grounds. Liz and I discussed um, Liz's views on cricket content on the podcast. Uh, are her views that there should be more of it? Yep, she was absolutely. She was like, <laughs> you and you and John should start having a cricket segment. <laughs> yes. Yes. Assuming we already have a best game uh, Hugo on the list. And assuming that I could come around to the position that there should be even more Hugos because at the moment uh, I'm not convinced we should have any more. It's getting out of hand. But assuming all that, I would then have one, I think, for best non-fiction. Since this is my own, you know, make-believe Hugo, I would probably define that quite broadly. So you could have essays, you could have books, you could have reviews, you could have academic works. Um, 
I mean, you could probably have uh, non-fiction video essays in there as well. Basically, the whole thing, a lot of the stuff that ends up kind of in best related, but maybe make it more specifically focused on uh, non-fictional content, a bit more like the kind of BSFA awards, uh, non-fiction award. Um, which I think works very nicely. Although I would exclude podcasts, maybe from the Hugo <laughs> non best nonfiction. I should say that. Um, I'm, so I'm thinking of things like you know I often look in semi prosines and I enjoy you know voting for strange horizons. Maybe not even primarily because of their fiction, but because I really like a lot of their nonfiction essays and uh, reviews. And it would be nice to have somewhere to reward particularly good examples of that form. Hmm. So would you do best nonfiction or best criticism? I don't know. I think I, I'd have to look up how I kind of defined it because the other problem is with the best with a, a Hugo, you kind of the problem is that best related work is a big grab bag. So you'd want to be able to carve off a chunk of what would be best related work and make it best nonfiction or best criticism. Um, I might I might make it best criticism and then like the, the the voters can define criticism. So that could include like straightforward reviews or it could include. Uh, you know, critical essays and things like that that aren't focused on any specific work. It could include, you know, things like Strange Horizons uh, roundtable discussions, you know, or, or long form. There's a lot of long form video essays out there, aren't there, now about generally criticism of various media properties from different angles. I think kind of include all of those in it, but maybe try and avoid nonfiction things like, you know, author interviews um, and certainly things like that, are, that do fit in best related, like art books and so on, would not be uh, in this category. I'm not sure why. I, I mean, I feel like professional nonfiction podcasts on the theme probably would fit in here. Yeah, I mean, I'd say like... I mean, I'm not sure if there are any. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an example of one. I'm sure there are ones that I would fit in. Like, I mean, Hugo Girl, in a way, is is a critical discussion of a different book each time and therefore would fit in. But I mean, I might try and say, well, there is already a thing for fan podcasts that would be, they would fit better in there. Yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not a professional thing, though. I mean, I think there isn't really a good space for professional podcasts, which is one of the things that I'd be getting to in my suggestion when we get to it. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, you said specifically professional, didn't you? Um... Yeah, I did say professional. Because I think criti- fan criticism is definitely covered by fancasts, because clearly it's part of what we do, and it's part of what lots of other fancasts do. I mean, one, one possible professional thing is, you know, you get TV shows which have accompanying podcasts. Um, some of which I've quite enjoyed. And maybe some of those would fit into that sort of sort of area. One thing I will say is, like, on the subject of professional criticism, obviously the lines here are slightly blurry because, like, I would argue that, for instance, upcoming conversation guest of honour, Neil Harrison, if, if Neil Harrison had a podcast in which he criticised mm, books, like, I would say that's probably more on the professional end, despite the fact that I don't think he'd be getting paid for it, because, like, obviously he was editor of Strange Horizons for ages, and he is incredibly knowledgeable in a way that when I talk about how much I like Moon Knight, I'm maybe not. And so there's, like, there's a semi-pro kind of problem here, isn't there? Um, but but basically what I want to say before Alison responds is, uh, Abigail and Neil, please do a criticism podcast. I will listen to the shit out of that. <laughs> Start arguing. Oh god, that would be so good. It would be very, very good. You should offer to edit it, John. Ooh. Uh, no, I don't think. I, I think. I think that would be difficult. Uh... <laughs> edit down someone else's three-hour argument, John. Um, I would also say, yeah. What one one thing I did think about is suggesting this for Glasgow. Is I think there's quite a lot of interesting work coming out of, um, you know, from UK-based writers and and in things like, um, you know, Vector for the BSFA has got a lot of good, 
good stuff in recently. So it would be a nice one to have at Glasgow, assuming there was a slightly more British tilt to the nominations, which may be completely wrong. I mean, best criticism would be great because I do think, and I know this is um, my patriotic prejudice, that a lot of the particularly good critics are British or have come out of British fandom. I think it's something we do quite well. That's fair. Well, I think, I mean, maybe I'm talking out my butt here, but is there an equivalent? I feel like the Science Fiction Foundation and the BSFA both do quite a lot for kind of science fiction criticism and commentary. And is there a similar American body to those two that focuses on that side of SF? I'm blanking on it if there is one. I mean, something like uh, New York Review of Science Fiction, right? Um, or the... Um... Yeah. I was thinking of New York Review of Science Fiction here. LA Review of Books does a bunch of good stuff as well. Oh, no, yeah, no, that's true. But, like, there's not a, like, there's Sifwa and there's, like, Asfa and there's, like, Wusfus itself, I guess. But I can't think of a nationwide American body that does science fiction commentary. <laughs> National Fantasy Fan Federation. I've never even heard of that. Yeah, there's the, uh, yeah, there's a reason for that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just wonder whether this is partly because of the structure of, of I wonder whether this is because British fandom has this as kind of a national thing that we do and maybe that's why because even if because it might even be true that it's not better in britain but we're better at concentrating it into a place where people know where it is like bsfa because like it might be there's loads of great stuff in america but there's no body that's kind of working to represent that on a national level i don't know right in americans and brits tell me what you reckon uh, yes i think this is exactly the heart of the matter i think we have the bsfa and foundation and both of these things are national organizations that are taking science fiction and fantasy criticism very seriously but i i just want to say before um angry people from iafa right in there is the international association for the fantastic in the arts which i think is uh worldwide but uh has quite a lot of americans i think in it uh, that runs the you know annual international conference on the fantastic in the arts so you've got that going ah. And Readercon, of course. Oh, yep. Yeah. No, that's true. So there are some things. But I think this all comes back to remember that British, the remarkable cohesion of British fandom, this is about to generate a massive split. And there's also um, the Finnish one. Oh, cool. I didn't realise that. I think, I think this is actually like, so I was going into this thing and I was like, we'll have an amusing chat and I probably won't have any like genuine opinions and now i'm like oh no they should definitely introduce best criticism this is very well argued and it ties in really well with british science fiction fandom like this is a good show actually so uh related to what i just said about tying into british science fiction fandom and its pursuits and tying into something i tried to get off the ground when i was very young and didn't really know how any of this worked um something that emily arrow and i chatted about years ago my my could well be a decade because i think it was before Luncon, was that neither of us was particularly happy with how the best dramatic category works in that it doesn't reward short film so if i was allowed to pick a hugo category and do it as a one-year thing i would pick best short film i would probably say uh films of 25 minutes or less and if i was going to do this at glasgow i would work with chap who does sci-fi london and i would have a kind of glasgow sponsored program of shorts in the year that showcased eligible shorts from around the world and encouraged the worldcom members to watch and vote for their favorites and have that as a hugo it would tie in well with sci-fi london which i think is a great british thing 
and also tie in obviously i know that other countries do this as well so i'm not trying to say britain's better but like uh i just say it ties in with a fan pursuit in britain which i think would be cool and yeah and i think short films are underrepresented in the hugos and probably are not as influential on the genre as short stories are which is probably why but um but yeah liz just say the sci-fi london man i think it's still louis savvy do you think there is a danger that your category would be dominated by essentially the five minute shorts that Pixar put out before the films and the kind of five minute uh, MCU short films and maybe not kind of get those less commercial short films that you may be aiming to to include? Maybe you might have to do something like restrict the num, like say like you know there can only be one film by any given studio maybe so you only got one Pixar and one Marvel. I don't know if that would work. I don't know how you would do that because I guess for a special Hugo category, do you have to hammer out the wording in as much detail as you do if it's going into the Constitution, or does the Hugo administrator get to sort of call a spade a spade a bit more? I don't know how that works. What did they do for best video game? Did they have a very kind of rigid definition? I assume they did, probably. Yeah, they had a rigid definition that was very different from the one that here Alexander is is putting forward for the actual suggestion, which was slightly annoying, but there we go. So no, you have a, it's done the same way as anything else. You just announce, the committee announces the wording that people are supposed to work to. Like you could definitely include just one from a studio or anything like that. It's very, and they don't have, even have to have voting. The, the Worldcon could just award a Hugo. Um, I'm going to talk about that a bit later. I had, I had forgotten that that's true, but that is true, isn't it? The... Yeah, 100%. Wow. Badger is the best cat, Hugo. Yes, yes. A couple of months ago, John said fan art is hilariously undiscoverable, but I don't think it's as undiscoverable as short film. We've been talking about it in the context of... Um, of the Sci-Fi London Film Festival, and some short films are on YouTube, but an awful lot of them aren't. They're not distributed. They are dependent on film festivals around the world, and and I hope that there are more online film festivals where we can see short films, and I think we might try to surface them a bit on Octothorpe when they happen. But it it's incredibly difficult to survey the ground, and one of my concerns with this is that... It's going to be hard for the for WUSFUS members to access short films um, to nominate because uh, there's just so many of them and they are so undiscoverable. But presumably you'd end up with the same sort of thing as you get in, you know, the other categories of general release. So if something was playing the film festival circuit and then after it had finished the circuit, they put it on YouTube in the next year, presumably it would then count in that year. It depends. But everything has to have special, everything has to have special dispensations, doesn't it? Yeah, so so it has to be voted on work by work. But also, if you were going to, in my proposal, you'd be doing some sort of magic portal that Worldcon members would log into to watch the movies. And so um, I would argue that even if something had had a limited release at a film festival, if it was widely available to the Worldcon membership, I think letting people nominate it for best film like i think i think that is that is right that is one of the big problems and i think you'd need to address it by making sure that you worked with the filmmakers to get a lot of these movies into the into the sphere of the votership um, and i think that's why i wouldn't necessarily advocate again for it to be added as a permanent hugo but i think doing it as a special hugo and really putting a lot behind it to increase the profile of short films in that year that would be really cool and i think there might be scope there so Esther, if you're listening to this, I think you have a volunteer for cur- curating your film festival. 
No, I think if you're going to do it, you want to work with um, Louis Savvy because he's done so much great work for Sci-Fi London. And um, I think, firstly, I mean, it should be his right of refusal because he I don't know if there's anyone else in the UK that's done more for science fiction short film, but I rather suspect there isn't. Uh, so he should probably get the kudos. Uh, but also, he has the contacts, the drive and the know-how. Uh, and also, they've started doing the online films now, which um, means that maybe the technical expertise is there now too again started this out by not really thinking it was a coherent idea and now i've said it out loud and i'm like oh <laughs> <laughs> they're interesting do you want to do best audio presentation allison one of the things that's happened this year is that last year the hugo award study committee was asked to go away and have a think about um best audiobook as a hugo category John and I are both on the Hugo Awards Study Committee, mostly because we wanted to put some oomph behind Best Game. And whenever anyone mentions Best Game, we're like, yes, this must be a Hugo. And But I have been chair of the Best Audiobook Subcommittee on that. Um, I don't think we're going to recommend Best Audiobook, which I think is, there is not a compelling argument for having it as a Hugo category. But I thought and got some encourage got some encouragement from other people that one way to push this into the long grass would be to think about best dramatic presentation and whether there was scope for splitting out audio from video. Uh, if I ever take this to the to Wusfus as a proposal, I will call my proposal "Video Killed the Radio Star." Mm-hmm. And I think that there is an argument that there's a lot of good work being done in audio and it all gets completely in audio dramatic presentation. So that includes things like fictional podcasts, it includes audio books, especially audio books like Sandman, where where more has been done than just reading out the book. It includes um, things like the big Finnish audio dramas um, and quite a lot of other audio stuff that is very good and that we are, and professional podcasts that are dramatic like Welcome to Night Vale and... The Lovecraftian ones that the BBC do would, would be eligible and would be good. And like, for example, the adaptation of R.U.R. that I had as a pick a couple of months ago. As somebody who likes a lot of audio content, I feel like it's being completely overshadowed in the Hugos in much the same way as short films are. There's a real, I think there's a discussion here, and I think it impinges on both of our categories, which is basically like, I love short film and I love audio dramatic presentations. Like, I mean, I've, I've, I'm a recent convert to short film. I've been watching Science Fiction London for two years. Uh, so like, you know, that is the extent of my short film um, knowledge, really. But I've really enjoyed being in that. And I'm really glad that they've put it online so I can. Um, and I, I've listened, I've been listening to dramatic presentations on the radio since the Dragon's Guide to Galaxy when I was a kid. But I think there is a problem here, which is I love both of them. I think it would be cool for them to get recognition, but I'm not sure they're a big enough part of the genre for them to be part of the Hugo's every year. So I think doing them as special categories would be a really good way of, of kind of squaring that circle, as it were. Yes, and I think we have to have a disclaimer for this entire segment, which is no more Hugo's, open brackets, apart from the best game Hugo, obviously, close brackets. Yeah, and we can make room for Best Game Hugo by getting rid of Best Editor, so it is fine. Oh, John. (laughs) Please write in, listeners. Please write in. Oh, John. On the subject of Hugo voting, it is now open until the 11th of August. So you've got a little bit more time, listeners. Keep reading. Keep going. Don't, whatever you do, stop reading on the basis you've got loads of time, because that is the way to miss a deadline for voting in the Hugos. Ask me how I know. In what order should we do picks? 
Should we let Alison wang on about ABBA for a bit? Because then we won't, she won't go on past like uh, 10.30. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's let Alison wang on about ABBA for a bit. She's put like a, an essay in the show notes. On, so let's go for it. Go on, go on, Alison, get wanging. No, all I've done is put in the show notes is, is what is the... No, I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely interested to hear about ABBA because... I missed I missed the um, Zoom meeting immediately after you went, so I've not really heard the story yet. So I am I am I'm 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 paying attention. Yes, tell us about Abba. So I am going to wang on about Abba, and this is because, as regular listeners to what thought might know, I'm not really a science fiction fan at all. What I am is a futurist. I really like things that are about the future and of the future, and about three miles from here, ABBA has built a purpose-built arena where they're doing a light show where you think that you've got ABBA from the 70s on stage, but obviously you don't really. It's just magic done by the Industrial Light and Magic people. Now, they've had a thousand animators working for several years on this and have spent a vast amount of money. Tickets are quite expensive and six of us, all science fiction fans, went last week and we had a lot of fun. So if you didn't know that it was a magic trick, you just wouldn't question. You just assume you're watching a live band. It looks exactly like watching a live band, except better in some ways because of all the money that's been spent on it. And it was fantastic. The sound was also very, very good. They've done the voices by recording ABBA now, but blending the voices using machine learning with ABBA at the height of their vocal skills. So that's quite good too. So it sounds amazing. It looks amazing. It's very, very good. It's quite expensive, but I mean, I think they spent 140 million pounds on it and you can see where that was spent they gave us free pin badges and i've defrayed some of the massive cost of our tickets by immediately flogging them on ebay for not inconsiderable amounts of money not as much as the tickets cost but plenty and um i went to something a little bit like this at disney world in 1979 but this is quite a bit better that was quite a long time ago so it was great I thought it was amazing it's probably pepper's ghost which is a victorian like trick yeah, I was going to say, what thing did you go to like this in Disney World in 1979? A Pepper's Ghost stage show where, oh, no, it was actually an animatronic stage show where they'd got heads of presidents speaking and declaiming things about the US Constitution. It was not as good. Oh, it's the Hall of Presidents. Yeah, there's, but there's no Pepper's Ghost in Hall of Presidents. No, no, it was just like heads, I think. It's full presidents, and now I'm a bit worried that you've kind of conflated it with like Futurama heads in a jar. You did also go and see a Pepper's Ghost probably as well. I've seen Pepper's Ghosts on many on many occasions, but I mean this is this is just fantastic. And apparently, um, this is where you take a lot of the best people in the world at doing this thing and put enormous amounts of money on it. But also, it is quite futury because this is not creepy, because actual ABBA, all four of them were involved in the motion capture for this and the stage management and how they walk and look. And so it's a lot less creepy than it would be or that it will be when they do this with dead pop stars, which I'm sure is going to be in the works for some people. Oh, yeah, it's coming. 100%. Because you can see a lot of bands looking at this and going, oh, oh, this is a thing. And I think... This is the thing where I go, I go to a lot of festivals and one of the things that happens at festivals is that bands from the 70s and 80s come on stage and do all their old hit. Well, it's normally a couple of people from the original band and a load of session musicians come on stage and do their all their old hits. And I quite like that. It's quite good. This is a lot better than that. If you like ABBA at all, I would recommend, um, if you like ABBA and futurism at all, you should, you should get on and see this. It's good. 
But am I, am I right in thinking there's there's no actual requirement for ABBA to be there at the when it's happening? It's just like there's a hologram and you know. No, it's a film, right? Yeah, it's a phenomenal money maker. I mean, if they're charged, I mean, I know it must have cost them a lot of money, but you know, there's no reason they couldn't run this for you know twenty years. Well, they have a live band. They have one of the ways they make it feel really good is that they have a live band with about a twelve piece live band on stage. Okay. But that is presumably all session musicians who can just be fired and you can just hire new ones when they retire and stuff. It is, yes. They're not going to be paid a lot. If you look at this and go, oh, they've put it in London. Could they do this in every city in the world? And there's a bit where they introduce the band and they say, and I'm going to introduce the band. And they don't actually introduce the band in the way that a live band would where they say the names of the people in the band and I was like aha that is because they have a they have a film which they can roll and they worked with ABBA for six weeks and and now they could be playing this all around the world until the money runs out so I think you will see ABBA but I mean it's, it's a purpose-built arena there's you know it's this is a very spendy activity people have spent a lot of money on it it's very exciting in a kind of weird way so my mum and dad are huge ABBA fans and they were entirely unimpressed by this uh, because they were like, it's just a film. I don't understand why it's good. Oh, no, it's great. <laughs> and so I'm interested by the, the, the disparity in the reactions. And I must admit, I think I'm more... I think it's really impressive technically. And I'd, and if it was a band I liked more than I like... I'm not a huge ABBA fan. So like, But if it was a band I really liked, like, I don't know, The Eagles, I'd be like, ooh, interesting. But... I do wonder whether if a band does this that I like when it's still new and shiny, I'll be like, oh, I'll go and see that. And it'll be like magic and it'll be very science fictional. I'll be very into it. But in like 20 years time where there's loads of machine learning concerts replicating old bands at their heyday, I think I might be quite a lot more jaded about it than going to see actual live music. And I did um, because I went to see the Eagles on their Farewell One tour and it wasn't, you know, they were older and they, they did not sound how they did on the records and there were a lot more horns and stuff. But it was still amazing and the energy in the room was still brilliant. And to be fair, the energy in the room must be brilliant at ABBA too because you've got like, what, 20,000 ABBA fans, all of whom really like ABBA. No, three. Three. It's, that's the, the other thing is that it's a small arena. So all the seats, all the... Ooh. it's purpose-built and it's small so all the seats are amazing and they're standing at the front i'm going to go back on a standing ticket so i can get right up to the front very excited by that and i think that if you're well, that's interesting i hadn't appreciated that if your folks are abba fans they would probably enjoy this a whole lot um and i would commend it to, but obviously people can do what they like right <laughs> You know, so those are the two reactions, though, which are, oh, yeah. oh God, this is amazing. This is fantastic. I'm so excited. I've n I never got the chance to see ABBA in the 70s. I'm really excited to go and this will be great. And I don't care that it's a light trick. And why would you want to do that? It's just a film. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's, and that's exactly it. I did see, I just remembered because I was like, you were like, oh, I never got to see them. I never got to see Ian Jury and the Blockheads. Oh, I've seen them. But I did get to see Phil Jupiter's and the Blockheads, uh, and that was that was really good. Uh, a festival, like a little day-long festival thing in Stamford, uh, and that was nice. I also understand that this is the technology that was used to do that performance of the Queen on the balcony on the final day of the Jubilee weekend when, when a holographic version of the Queen came out and waved to the crowd. The difficult thing with that is that obviously it's much more difficult to do this sort of hologram for a lizard. My pick is Moon Knight. This is not particularly current because Moon Knight wrapped up a few weeks ago now, uh, but I did quite like it. So Moon Knight, 
is a character I got into through podcasting because there's a podcast called The Incomparable and they did a summer long tournament of superheroes and Moon Knight made it to the last 16 in that tournament beating such little known characters as Thor and so I kind of read the comics because I was like oh this is interesting they're all talking about Moon Knight a lot he sounds kind of weird and I got into the comics which kind of start to explore his character much more in the sense of like dissociative identity disorder and stuff like that and also the mysticism of the character was much more focused whereas originally Moon Knight was a bad Batman ripoff and originally the different uh personalities were basically just alter egos he had uh while being a bad batman ripoff and so i was really pleased that moon knight the series lent very much more into did and mysticism than it did into bad batman ripoffs uh which i thought was very good uh in general i very much like oscar isaac i was a little bit unconvinced by the accent but then that gets like specifically addressed in the universe of the show which i thought was brilliant and it i think kept me engaged as someone who likes the character it kind of gave me enough to be like oh i think i might know what's happening there and then i was like oh i was right and that was very exciting but also a lot of the supporting characters were really good and i liked ethan hawk a lot i understood a lot better why they cast him as the villain after about episode three or episode four and yeah just really really enjoyed it generally i think it's much more character driven than plot driven i have a few friends who found a couple of the episodes a bit lacking in plot and i was like that was so full of stuff but it was a lot kind of it wasn't much plot stuff it was more kind of internal stuff but i kind of think that makes sense for the character anyway because the character is very much about well because he has multiple personalities he they do tend to focus on that a lot in some of the comics um so that kind of made sense to me uh anyway but yeah i really enjoyed it generally i think it is probably my favorite of the marvel shows so far beating previous favorite hawkeye allison you haven't seen moon knight yet I haven't seen any of it. I know nothing of it. I have zoned. I zoned out through your description in case I am, in case it was a bit spoilery for me. I mean, I I am excited to watch it. Um, if you could send me a note saying which bits of the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe I need to have watched before I start watching Moon Knight, I will. I will put them on my iceberg. None. Yeah, it's probably probably okay. I can start from the beginning of Moon Knight. In that case, I'll do it after Severance. I'm not finished with Severance yet. To the point where one of our friends was like, I don't really understand the point of this because how does it tie into the rest of the MCU? Which I think is like the opposite reaction to Alison of things. So uh, interesting. (laughs) Well, only because I'm in MCU bankruptcy. Liz, what did you think of Moon Knight? I think Alison should give up and just start watching the MCU in random order. Just, Just go for it. Just pick what looks fun. Yes, do it. I, I, I kind of have had that experience because that's how I did comics as a child because we only got comics kind of randomly when we were lucky and and we'd just read bits of the Marvel Universe totally out of order and not understand anything and I still quite like them a lot. You had to walk both ways uphill in the snow to get your Marvel comics. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I've seen Moon Knight. It's pretty good. The plot is, uh, I mean, the plot's not very good, is it? So it's a good job it's not particularly plot-oriented because the plot is basically a bit, the plot is a, a bit of nonsense with some fighting and so on but oscar isaac is very very good he somehow manages to pull off having these like two identities one of which you know is a mercenary and one of which is like a museum nerd and somehow oscar isaac manages to pull off looking like a nerd yeah you know kind of looking completely unremarkable in a way that i didn't you know you that you wouldn't think he would if you sort of saw him in the other persona and yeah so i thought he was very good as a central character and I think the supporting actors in it are also pretty good. It's just, you know, that the plot was kind of a, let's find out about this superhero and, oh, there's a threat to the world and, oh, there's a villainous person and, oh, he has to resolve it. And, 
here's a little hook for maybe the next season. And I was not particularly engaged in any of that really, but I did like Oscar Isaac. Oh, I do very much like, um, I do like F. Murray Abraham's portrayal of this god who is not really a benevolent force on Oscar Isaac's character. But it was not, I don't think it's right up there in my favourite MCU ones, just because it felt like the plot was a bit like an MCU, ooh, there is a superhero and there's a villain and they threaten the world. And I couldn't tell you anything that made it stand out, particularly from the other 27 iterations of this plot. But I quite enjoyed it anyway, um, especially the um, hippo. Yes, yes. Sorry to anyone who was champing at the bit to find out what Liz's pick was, but I have to go to brunch now because it's Father's Day, and so I am cruelly cutting Liz off uh, in order to not annoy my family. Uh, But that was the Octothorpe podcast, and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Does that mean I wanged on about ABBA for too long? No, you wanged on about ABBA for uh, as long time as I expected. I just finished The Last Graduate by Naomi Novik, which I thought was good. Ended on a cliffhanger. Outrageous. Got to the end of the book, and I said, to, I was like on the train, and I was like, oh no, I want to know. Ah, anyway, I have to wait for the next one. Grr. I think the third one's out this year, though, so you should be okay. Yeah, people, people have said um, that the second one ends on a massive cliffhanger. It's an entirely predictable cliffhanger, really, as I said in my pick. Entirely predictable cliffhanger in, in hindsight, but also. Um, the first one also ends on a giant cliffhanger, so um, it it fits with the series, I think. Yeah, yeah, but in the case of the first cliffhanger, I knew what it would be from like page three of the book, so I'm not, I wasn't very ex- surprised. I'm pretty sure I know what the second one is going to be as well. Um, not that I've read the second book. They're, they're not. I mean, this is one of the things where I'm kind of like I have to grade these things on a curve because when books are as predictable as this, you go, oh yes, but it's a young adult. You probably wouldn't have spotted it when you were sixteen. I mean, I didn't spoil it but i never try that's whenever i spot a twist in a plot coming i'm like that must have been extremely obvious because i noticed it which is why i really hate that mars episode of doctor who because i saw the twist coming at the beginning and i was like that is bad writing if i notice yes yeah, so, so the problem is that the more science fiction you read or the more books you read generally the more inclined you are to spot where writers are doing things and then you and and you're correct that if you're insisting on having fun when you read it's more fun to read without spotting what's going to happen thanks I think. And I remember this from reading the first the first book of the of A Song of Ice and Fire when I did not spot the I did not spot the big reveal despite the fact that my, um, my friends were like this is a thing and I was like oh that's so obvious I did not spot it and of course it's it's the big reveal for the entire series not just the first book but it's very obvious from the first book if you're paying attention. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.